You're listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. This weekend, the film awards season will finally come to an end with the Film Independent Spirit Awards on Saturday and, of course, the Oscars on Sunday. Here on the show, we've talked to a number of folks nominated for these awards over the last year or so. So today, you get a clip show. We pulled together some snippets of conversations with 18 individuals up for prizes this weekend. So this is going to be a long one, but it ought to keep you some nice company on your drive or jog or whatever you do when you're listening to these. We're going to start off the day with uh, a guy I think got the shaft, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, Bradley Cooper was somehow left off the list of Best Director nominees at the Oscars. Though no need to cry for him, obviously he's a three-time nominee for producing, starring in, and writing A Star is Born. Nevertheless, I thought we'd kick it off with this guy who clearly has the chops to make an exceptional film. And, uh, you know, let's hear him talk about that process. I mean, if the directors aren't going to show him love for those efforts, then I certainly will. So here is Bradley Cooper talking about his approach to making A Star is Born. Um, The thing I loved about Maddie was uh, I was a big fan of Black Swan and Requiem for a Dream. Uh, But really it was because Jennifer Lawrence had really, I asked her what she thought and uh, because I was looking for a DP. Um, I had such a specific vision of how I wanted to shoot everything, and specifically the concert stuff. That was one of the compositions I made a decision early on and even told Warner Brothers. I said, look, I'm never going to be in this crowd, so I just want want you guys to know that now. It's all going to be on the stage. It's all going to be subjective, and I'm going to give you scope and intimacy at the same time. So when I met with him and he was kind of to meet with me in my house, I talked about primary colors, um, how I wanted each character to, to be defined by a color and then how that changes as the movie progresses, um, how I wanted to shoot it, uh, what aspect ratio, um, the, the concert stuff. And then I just said, you know, and, um, you know, the use of steady cam and handheld and dolly and how we're going to, how the, those are all going to play in various emotional points. Because the movies that I love, form always follows function. I'm never aware, if I'm aware of the camera movement while I'm watching the movie, the chances are it's not uh, fueling the story. Mm-hmm. It's only in retrospect, like, wow, how did that how did that director make me feel like that? Oh, wow. You know, Stanley Kubrick put golf clubs uh, in the same corner of the room as Tom Cruise and then tennis rackets the same corner of the room as Nicole Kidman. And, like, she wants to have the relationship, but he's on his own. You know, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for all that mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I just love it. That's why I was so thrilled to be able to have a palette now to, to make a movie with. Yeah. Um, and he was game for all of that. You know, fans. That was this thing, ceiling fans. And one of my favorite shots... Not not my favorite, but the shot I really love is when they're in the diner in the Mexican restaurant. She's talking to him. We were able to get the reflection of the ceiling fan coming off of the uh, the counter, the order counter, right behind her. So she's not even aware of everything that this guy brings with him, you know, because that's eventually yeah. going to be the thing that symbolizes yeah. death. Um, stuff like that is very fun for me. Yeah. Um, and he, and to be able to work with such a, a master like him to achieve that was was wonderful. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, the editing. I, I'm a great fan of the editing because it, it it moves the story at a clip but also just within sequences like uh, you know I'm thinking about when she starts to destroy the house at the end and then you just cut to her in the middle of the mess just things like that which I just think are great to, to because we don't need everything in between that happened you know and, and you do that in a number of different ways throughout the film and your editor is Jay Cassidy great editor uh and Mike Acevedo also worked on oh, it, who's okay. incredible, who works with Jay. And I would met, worked with him, I think I met him on, uh, yeah, Silver Linings. He was an assistant, assistant, assistant on Silver Linings. But I, I met Jay on Silver Linings Playbook and also on American Hustle and yeah. Joy. And, 
worked for many hours with him on those movies, and David was kind enough to let me be there with them. Uh, so he and I had gone through war together already for mm-hmm. uh, on other movies, and so it was there was no question I wasn't gonna. There were a couple people I would not do the movie without. I knew it's Shelley Ziegler who was the first AD. From Baltimore and Zan, her second AD. I thought there's no way I'm going to make this movie without them for, for 42 day schedule on a 38 million dollar budget. There's no way I can get it done uh, without them. Yeah. And Jay Cassidy was another one. There's no way I'm going to do this movie without him. And all of that speaks to the uh, the rhythm you were talking about earlier, right? I mean, uh, did you discover things in the edit? I mean, I guess oh. you always do. Oh. But like anything, oh, yeah. anything profound oh. of note, major. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, to me, the most. I love shooting. Uh, <coughs> hate writing. It's hor- horrible. <laughs> It's wonderful because you have an unlimited budget and you can go anywhere in the world and create new worlds if you want. So that's creatively uh, uh, exciting, but it is very hard. The shooting of it is fun because I love actors and I love uh, the creation of the filmmaking within the moment of making it. Uh, But editing is the joyous part. Editing is when time really stops. I mean, you go down to an editing room and you come out and 14 hours have gone by and you cannot believe. And that's when you know you're having fun is when... You can't calibrate time anymore. Um, So it's all about discovery. It's almost three separate pieces of artistic content, really, that I've discovered in this experience. The writing of the script is this wonderful process, and then at the end of it you have the script. And that that is the piece of content. And then you have the shooting of the script, which is another artistic exercise. And that is its own – that's its own piece of content. And then you have the editing, which is its own artistic exercise. uh, experience and creates its own piece of content and I really do see them as three separate things so at the beginning of each one you've done all this work you have all this thing that's going to support this new exploration but this is a new exploration mm-hmm. you have to be able to throw everything away if it doesn't yeah. work it's not going to then magically work um, so I, I absolutely love editing yeah you basically write your movie three times that's, that's right what they say yeah Let's stick with directors here. We're going to go on to Lynn Ramsey now, the director of one of my favorite films this year, You Were Never Really Here, with Joaquin Phoenix. Here you're going to hear Lynn talk about her approach to that film, uh, specifically some of the editing choices, uh, the way she, her, her philosophy with flashbacks, uh, you know, just the adaptation process. This was based on a book, but the film is such an interesting, expressionistic kind of specimen and uh you know i just love talking to her about this i'm glad i was able to get her over the summer to talk about it so here is lynn ramsey talking about you were never really here and she was nominated for best feature and best director at the independent spirit awards so watch for her on saturday hopefully she'll win something well this one was we i guess it was an approach that that was like do we have to see everything do we have you know or what's left of the imagination you know like um I think audiences are quite sophisticated, and and also I worked with an amazing editor called Joe Beanie that, you know, you know, he'd worked with Herzog before, and he did my last movie where we were jumping around in time a lot, yeah. and so we learned a lot, you know, because that script was also very tight, you know, like, uh, because that there was like, you know, it was really to the bone to make that film, mm-hmm. so it was almost like armchair edited on paper. Mm-hmm. It was like it goes from this to this and this and this, and here's the sound that connects them all mm-hmm. and. Um, but I think, you know, one thing he said that I thought was really, you know, a beautiful thing he says, like, you know, was that he felt we edited it together, you know, um, it was, it was quite a, 
it was probably about half the time the editing of this of my last movie, you know, mm. in terms of because it went to Cannes and was crazy things happened. So after this crazy shoot, it was I thought it, but you know, some the editing is like, oh, yeah, you've got a bit of headspace and whatever. Mm-hmm. What well, was it? It didn't really turn out like that. It was just like um, suddenly a lot of crazy things happened. Can liked it, and we didn't, you know, have, it didn't have any credits with storyboards in it. That mm-hmm. you know, it was things like that. But getting back to your question, it was um, I think for a real exercise in economy for us, and all, and also. What do you need to know, you know, yeah. um, and what spaces that give other people to think about it, yeah. about it, and um, and where is this character's headspace right now? And we certainly saw like um, uh, the, you know, I don't I don't really like uh, traditional flashbacks or anything like that, but there was a, sort of, you know, post traumatic stress disorder kind of element to it, which. To me, I saw much more like shards and broken glass in his head, and I felt mm-hmm. that we should be really that one or two images would tell enough, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but also give this idea of like a repetitive kind of um, like lucid kind of hallucination, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and you know, but also we tried to keep this really propulsive narrative. And and one thing I, you know, I, you know, or just a feeling of the energy that that I felt. You know, the book was a real page turner. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he, you know, John self admittedly was still finishing the book. It was only released <laughs> in France, um, and he, you know, so it was a bit like I didn't know me that. starting off this thing and go, you know, saying where is this going to go? And, um, and and it was it was more it was it was very organic compared to my other films. I, I was lucky in that that um, the, the financiers were, you know, were rolling with me, changing things. Let's keep the director train rolling here with Spike Lee. Back in October, I was in New York uh, to write a cover story, uh, incidentally on this man's competition for Best Director at the Oscars this year on Alfonso Cuaron. But while I was there in New York, I got a chance to go over to 40 Acres and a Mule in Brooklyn and sit down with Spike Lee to talk about his latest film, Black Klansman. He's nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay for the film. If you can believe it, that's his first nominations for Best Picture and Best Director ever. Uh, That's insane. But anyway, uh, that's part of the narrative for him this year, uh, the fact that it's time for him to finally win a competitive Oscar. When I was speaking with Spike, though, I I really wanted to just kind of talk about craft, as we always do around here. And I'm just really curious about this trademark shot of his, the double dolly shot, which uh, if you've seen a Spike Lee film, you've seen it. Uh, It's an image of a character moving toward the camera in kind of an ominous, uh, floaty kind of way, and he's made it his trademark. So you're going to hear me talking to him about that specifically amongst a few other things here in this clip. So here's Spike Lee talking about Black Klansman. The script tells us everything. So, for example, uh, color. Oh, films were very important in color. Do the right thing. We wanted to show the heat, uh, the the musical aspects of School Days and Malcolm X. Uh, Look at the old MGM Three strip, I mean, even though it wasn't three strip, but that type of technicolor. And then if we look at the latest film, uh, we wanted to, this film looked like the other 70 films I grew up with French Connection, Dog the Afternoon. That's why we shot it on, on, on the film. Mm-hmm. 
And also, you know, the classic shot, the Spike Lee dolly shot. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when did that first hit you as a, an, I mean, an image of impact that you would... Well, we first... We did on Bamboozle. It was a scene where my character, Giant, is Ernest Dickerson. First, I'd like to talk about Ernest Dickerson. Ernest Dickerson and I entered NYU together. And we bonded right away because he also went to a historically black school. He went to Howard University. I went to Morehouse. So there weren't that many of us there. We bonded. Ernest was his best DP in the school. So Ernest shot all my films at NYU. Then in... uh, in a row she's gonna have it school days do the right thing Mo better blues jungle fever then malcolm x and after malcolm x uh he went on to direct uh tupac and juice so ernest came in to film school wanted to be the director but he knew that he was such a good dp he felt that you know if i keep that eventually could lead me to being a dp you know being a director so, you know, it's just vibing, and you know, and and we have to service the film. What is the, what is the music, the cinematography, the editing, production design, costume design? Everybody has to use their skills to best service the film. That's always been uh, the marching orders. Does that shot? I mean, you you repeat it, obviously. Does it mean something different to you every time you use it? Oh yeah. So when, again, getting back to your question. When Ernest and I did the first time, and also like to say, no way in the world did we ever say that we invented that shot. It's been done before. Sure. So as a shot where I had to walk down the block and Ernest and I had to say, you know, let's have some fun. So the early the early uses of that shot was really just, you know, being film school geeks. But then Ernest and I said, decide, you know what? This we really we can't make light of this this shot the double dolly shot we're talking about so from now on and his utilization has to really have impact so the first time we really did that which is probably one of the best uses was in Malcolm X the backstory the late great Dr. Ben Shabazz Malcolm's widow told me that she felt that Malcolm knew who's going to be assassinated and they want to be a martyr. So once Dr. Shabazz told me that, I said, how am I going to try to show this emotion on his face? Knowing that what his widow just told me, that he's going to his own execution. So that's where we came up with the, that use. And uh, another great use is the most, is the most recent film. Mm-hmm. Black Klansman. Very end, yeah. Yeah. All right. Speaking of Black Klansman, we actually talked to the star of that film earlier this year, John David Washington. He was not Oscar nominated for the film, but he was uh, nominated for a Screen Actors Guild Award. But he's on the show because he's a supporting actor nominee this year for Monsters and Men. And I love this guy. I think he's got such a bright future ahead of him. Obviously, he's the son of Denzel Washington, but he's got so much talent and so much to give and uh, just got a great outlook. So. I think you'll get a, a glimpse of that here. So here's John David Washington. When you came out of college and, and, and you went through football for a while and then you uh, started to make that transition to acting with mm-hmm. Ballers just you know several years ago, mm-hmm. uh, did it feel right? Did it feel natural? Did it feel like this is, this is what I want to do? 
Can I cuss on here? Yes. Hell yeah, it felt right. <laughs> it's encouraged. Yeah, well, I, I, I never felt more like – I must say, like, having a great day on set, I, I can't compare it to any great day I had on the football field. But I think the motivations were different because I was, I was just so – I was just, again, so relentless in my pursuit of independence. It took away a lot of the joy. And, like, do you even like what you're doing or you just need – feel the need to be independent, you know what I mean? So maybe that sort of saturated the, the joy a little bit. But, but yeah, I mean, I wanted to, again, I wanted to do this since Pops was doing Shakespeare in the Park. Yeah. So here I am doing it, yeah. getting to express, getting to put all these emotions and put them into a character, you know. And, and, and there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of similarities from football to here. I mean, you still have so many people on set that you depend on. Everybody needs to do their job. And I love that. Mm-hmm. I love the camaraderie of it all. And when there's egos when the egos are set aside and you're just there to service the film or the project, that's a beautiful feeling. I mean, that's a high I'm, I'm constantly chasing. Yeah. Uh, the, the last question on this, the obvious one that maybe you get tired of hearing, but, you know, being the son of Denzel Washington, do you, does that make you feel like you have something more to prove as an actor? Well, like just taking you through my journey in football. <laughs> I mean, what do you think? I mean, yeah, I, 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 got a lot to, I got a lot to prove to myself. You know, I, that, that's, that's bad fuel. It used to be. It used to fuel me. Like I'll show them. I'll show him. Right. But that 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 the, there's no longevity in that. That's short money. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to do it for me. You know, I got to do it for for who I believe in. I believe in God. I pray every day. So if this is if this is what He wants, it feels really good. So I'm like, <laughs> God, thank you. This because this is if this is what you want me to do, this is great because I love it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I, um, I just want. It's all about the work, though. You know, I mean, for, I had the helmet syndrome where I, I didn't want people knowing my face. I just wanted to get out there with a helmet on and run for them yards. So it's not about recognition necessarily. I, I if I can inspire somebody, anybody, one person to make them feel the way I felt watching the movies I described to you earlier and I told you about earlier, yeah. and I jo- I did my job. Yeah. Next up we have Amy Adams. She was nominated for supporting actress for Vice. Uh, she plays Lynn Cheney in the film, Dick Cheney's wife. And uh, it's a great performance and I really wanted to talk to her about you know, digging into uh a real life person uh, what kind of research she might have done. Uh, it's a very interesting movie given the fact that the actors playing these roles certainly don't share political uh, allegiance with these characters. And uh, that becomes an interesting sort of psychological exploration for them as actors and, and kind of finding what it is that drives them. And that's the bulk of my conversation with uh, Amy here in this snippet. So here's Amy Adams talking about her work in Vice. I think the biggest challenge for me was just creating a character that aged for, you know, 50 years Mm -hmm. and still felt like the same person, Mm -hmm. but went through an evolution and creating that um, in a way that felt subtle and real as opposed to, um, but I'm doing it with Christian, so it makes it a lot easier. (laughs) Um, But in... With with Lynn, it's it's so strange, too, because everything even that I read about her or saw about her that wasn't written by her was based on her past a certain age so Mm -hmm. going back into research I really had to sort of I guess triangulate between what people uh, had told Adam Um, Adam sent me these amazing this amazing letter somebody had written and then there was an article someone had written about the two of them and then um, sources you know we had Mm -hmm. sources (laughs) And then uh, kind of watching how people reacted to her and kind of trying to understand 
how she got that way mm -hmm. and drawing conclusions about kind of what what about her past what about her experience um, created that kind of ambition and that kind of drive and that kind of focus um, so that it was coming from a place that didn't feel purely Shakespearean yeah, you know exactly. and felt a little felt more grounded what it's always find? important to me as I like my characters to feel like you could meet them on the street. What do you think that drive was about? I mean, that's what I told Adam. It's what I've told everyone about this movie. What I come away from this movie thinking is why. Uh, you know, all of that push for power, uh, you know, specifically regarding Dick Cheney, he, he, he doesn't need the money. He, he's not necessarily getting the credit because he's, mm -hmm. you know, VP and everything. It's just like this push for power and why. And you got any ideas? I mean, I, I have ideas. I have no conclusive to, conclusory evidence, mm -hmm. you know. But in, in looking at Lynn in particular, I mean, I think you get to a point in life where you can lose perspective if you don't. Um, it's easy to lose perspective in the pursuit of power or, mm -hmm. or wealth, I think. And I don't know that that's what happened to Lynn. But I do know in the beginning she... Um, she came from a real rough upbringing. And she doesn't talk about it in the way that sort of our society talks about, you know, everyone's so open and just, like, shares about their pain and their trauma. She's honest about it um, in her book, but she almost tells it with sort of this romanticized, like, everything feels like it's shot in soft focus in the way that she tells her story about, you know, her uh, the tragedies in her family's history and her dad's you know, problems with gambling or, you know, having to move out of her house into an apartment because they lost their house and going to the state championships for baton twirling and seeing the girls of privilege and understanding that she was one of the only ones there in a handmade costume. You know, little things that you start to go, oh, I kind of see. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm seeing where, you know, she created um, a real... Um, a real, a real drive and mm -hmm. understanding that it was going to be up to her to get herself out of um, her situation. If yeah. she wanted to, um, I think she learned very early that her hard work could be rewarded. Mm -hmm. And so I think she kind of just had this amazing focus and work ethic. And it didn't matter if it was baton twirling or, you know, um, getting the husband or whatever it was. Whipping him she, into shape whipping him into shape so but it was it was as soon as I felt this in reading it and there was this I I actually really liked this because I know ambition still feels like such a dirty word especially for women to mm -hmm. be like I'm ambitious it just doesn't I know Reese Witherspoon talked about this in a yeah. speech and it's it's worth looking up and so I felt that Lynn didn't feel apologetic about being ambitious she saw it as I decided I wanted to be the best girl and I used to fantasize about the dress I'd wear, and gosh darn it, I did it, and I wore the dress, mm -hmm. you know. And she's proud of herself, and that's something that isn't instilled often mm -hmm. um, about um, ambition in women. And, yeah. You know, it's it's not always seen the same way. All right, sticking with actresses. Uh, look, Tony Collette gave the best performance of the year, male or female, leader, supporting. I don't care. Uh, her, her work in Hereditary, Ari Aster's film, which I saw at Sundance and scared the shit out of me. She's fantastic in this movie, and I, I knew she was not going to get nominated for an Oscar. Horror movies just seem to not do well, even though, to be fair, she was previously nominated for a horror film. Uh, 
for the sixth sense. But uh, Hereditary was always going to be an uphill climb. She was thankfully nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for female lead and obviously just crushed it on the critic circuit. She won so many awards there. And funnily enough, you know, for someone who delivered the best performance of the year, she's not one to to really enjoy talking about the acting process. So I tried, I poked and I prodded and we, we got somewhere on that, but uh, largely wanted to talk to her about just this fiery scene that happens in the middle of the movie. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And to just kind of get some insight into her approach to that. So here's Tony Collette. You know, usually when you start a movie, the first few days at least there are lighter scenes with few, you know, less dialogue if any dialogue at all and I turned up and had to go straight into some of the most intensely emotional stuff I've ever had to do with wow. loads of dialogue and at crazy hours of the day and night and I think it was just a matter of accepting that this is what it was I just had to I just had to show up and I had to do it I had no choice I kind of you know I knew I read it I'd spoken to Ari we'd had you know conversations at length a couple of times we had a small rehearsal period with the kids Mm. and um I you know this I think it always helps when the script is brilliant and it really really was um and you know it's an actor's job to make something feel truthful and it 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 it, as you see, it is how I read it. So I just, you know, went for it. I think all actors want a chance. They're own, you know, you're only ever as good as the opportunity you're given. And I feel like Ari just wrote something so, so incredible. I would have been a dick to not <laughs> put it in, you know. Like, um, what an opportunity. It was really a, an amazing, amazing gift. I can't believe he fucking, sorry, chose me. No, like, please. All the curse words possible. Okay, Bring it. sorry. Um, yeah, I'm, I feel incredibly lucky and as dark and heavy and intensely exhausting that it was, it was somehow very, very satisfying. And that family dynamic is, you know, uh, do you draw on personal stuff or something like that? I mean, just, you know, that That always feels wrong. It always feels, um, to, I mean, I think all actors somehow do use all of their experiences because you are using yourself and you are using your emotional, uh, um, I was going to say toolbox. It sounds so wanky uh, and actory. I hate talking about acting, but, um, oh, oh yeah, just cause it is actually, it's kind of a mystery and I love that it, it takes on a life of its own and I'm not entirely in control. Mm. I, I kind of prefer it that way. It feels freer. It feels, um, like there's more of an opportunity for, something real to happen um, and for spontaneity to occur. And the less in control I am, the more satisfying it is. I think actually it's kind of a metaphor for life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, it's why people meditate. You get to that place where you're kind of free in it. That's Mm -hmm. what I love. And there was a lot of that on this. Now that I know you don't like talking about acting. (laughs) Let's talk some more. Well, I just want to know. Now I want to go down a different path. Like what, what do you hate being asked as an actress? Uh, just, I mean, I come from a very working class background, so it just feels indulgent and I feel like a dickhead when really asked to talk about acting. I remember I was asked to be on the jury at the Cannes Film Festival and it was the first time I felt like I was given permission to be able to talk about the art of filmmaking and acting in depth and it was really lovely it was mm-hmm. a really really great experience for me because till that point it just felt it did it felt indulgent and I feel 
kind of self-conscious doing it and also because I don't entirely understand what I'm doing and I don't want to because I don't want it to be too self-conscious, you know. Okay, this year's likely lead actor uh, Oscar winner is Rami Malek. Rami played Freddie Mercury in the Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody. Now, there has been, uh, you know, a lot going on around this movie that has very little to do with the movie. Uh, and, and that's regarding the, the fact that Fox fired the director, Brian Singer, who I'm sure you're very well aware is also uh, living under a cloud of sexual abuse and assault allegations. Uh, but what I wanted to talk to Rami about, and he's been very tight lipped about this all year long, but I tried is just how that reality affected him on the set. I mean, Singer was fired reportedly for just unprofessional behavior, not showing up on set. You know, we hear things in this industry. The director of photography is essentially responsible for directing this film or the first AD. I mean, at the end of the day, this did not sound like a very pleasant experience on the set. And I just wanted to know how that affected Rami with a performance that was a high wire act. And uh, here's his answer. At one point, I think it just, it, it all raised my game in a way because there were moments I just told myself, you know, things are changing and what you can do right now is depend on yourself, push yourself to to excel even further and take on the responsibility of, of not only honoring him, Freddie, and doing him justice, but making sure that, you know, everyone around me was, uh, was not going to, uh, a fall in into some type of chaos or or, or meltdown. Mm-hmm. I think I just had to pick myself up by the bootstraps and, and continue doing my job as diligently as I thought I had been. And when you know, if you think about me and, and Mr. Robot, and uh, the first season I had multiple directors. I knew Elliot. I knew exactly what I was going to do from day one. To uh, to the very end of that first season, and I I had identified that before I started. Now it's always helpful to have a director guide you to some degree, but with with this particular character, I had about it a, at least a year of preparation. So um, I, I I wasn't completely jarred by the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually got a little bit of rest <laughs> right before right before Dex came on, mm-hmm. and uh, Dexter was just this incredible uh, infusion of energy. He's he's an actor, so he was um, came from a perspective where he could watch all the footage, and he knew exactly where we were going and what I was doing. We had uh, Tom Siegel, who I don't think has got enough love. He's our one of my favorite DPs. Oh, he is an incredible DP. And I thought, if we lose our DP, then we're going to have a problem. Mm -hmm. Because uh, he had just a cohesive vision for how he wanted to go from some handheld stuff early on to a very polished look towards the end. And, you know, ultimately, I, I think it's fairly seamless. Yeah. Well, was that whole thing something you chalk up to, you know, creative tensions, or do you feel that it, there was an onset environment you want to avoid going forward? Like, what did you take ultimately from that situation? I think ultimately, I just uh, I know that I have to be as prepared as <clears throat> humanly possible, and but still be able to get go out there and perform spontaneously and. That, that anything can happen on a set as it can in life. And, uh, you know, I just 
Just compose yourself and try to uh, be the best leader you can be on set. I think uh, just just uh, be as, as elegant and dignified and, and graceful as you can. And collectively, uh, you know, uh, we had a, we had an uh, incredible cast that from day one uh, supported me to the nth degree, and we all raised each other's games. I think you go in there, you never know what you're going to expect, but if you come in with the right attitude, you, you, you can uh, overcome any obstacle. All right, next up, this is one of my favorite episodes I've ever recorded. If you're a longtime listener at all, you've heard both of these guys before, Sam Rockwell and Christian Bale. We talked to them both last year for uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, and uh, Hostiles, respectively. This year, the two of them star in Vice. Bale stars as Dick Cheney, and uh, Sam Rockwell as George W. Bush, and they're both fantastic, but... Getting them together uh, is a whole other thing. I mean, they've known each other for like 25 years, and it just made for a great dynamic on the show, I thought. Here we're talking about uh, some of the stuff I was referring to with Amy Adams, uh, just kind of pushing your political ideologies aside and trying to find the humanity and the reality to the character that you're playing. So here is Sam Rockwell and Christian Bale talking about that, and obviously they're both nominated. Christian for lead actor, Sam for supporting actor. No, you, you absolutely have to do that. Um, uh, it, I, there, there's no interest to me in uh, uh, making a film where it's my opinions in there. My opinions are, I want to remove completely. You know, Adam is the storyteller, and we agreed early on, let me counter his um, uh, 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 points of view. Uh, let me advocate for Cheney. Let me try to convince him. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do believe Cheney, he's a very strong-minded individual. Um, you know, the nature of what does it mean to be a patriot? You know, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a, a real amorphous word, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like obsession, right? It yeah. can be a healthy thing. It can be incredibly unhealthy as well. But he certainly believes that what he did is right and correct and patriotic and good for the American people, whereas you will get other people who will say he's absolutely unpatriotic and, and say he's a war criminal. You know, so uh, that, that disparity there. But for me to truly try to understand where he was coming from, um, to uh, try to see the motivations and hopefully the good motivations in it, to look at his personal life as well, his devotion to Lynn, to his family, his embracing of Mary when she came out immediately, even though it was anathema to the rest of the uh, party at that time. Um, uh, 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 there is of course you know the enormous thing here though of um, the the Iraq war enhanced interrogation um, warrantless wiretapping etc but how somebody can come to believe that these are American values um, and believe in American exceptionalism um, in a way that is so vastly different from the way that other people view mm-hmm. uh, American exceptionalism, but certainly not wanting to put my own politics into it. You know, the yep. difference between Adam and Sam, myself, Amy, Steve, is you're looking at Sam and me and Amy and Steve on the screen. And so we can be a terrible distraction to the film if you know too much about our own ideas about yep. it. We want... We want you to just look and see the characters, you know? So for me, it's Adam's place to be as political as he wants. Mm-hmm. But for me to try and stay, you know, mm-hmm. somewhat neutral as far as the viewer is concerned, of course I've got my own opinions, very strong ones, but that's not what I do, you know? I yep. portray other people, uh, 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 not me. Um, but it was a fascinating um, exploration, you know? He, yeah. He's a fascinating individual, very complex, 
um, very um, um, very strong-minded and hardline, but uh, um, lots of ambiguity at the same time. You know, having this incredible ambition and um, many would say arrogance, but also being quite self-sacrificing, giving up his own dreams of the presidency. You know, being a real zealot for the unitary executive, but which is for the president, is not for him directly. But seeing the opportunity, obviously, with uh, W of being able to um, have his perfect scenario of working in the shadows but truly controlling mm-hmm. um, uh, everything. But he's a, he's a remarkably complex individual. I, I came away from the movie with a big question mark of why, though. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to get into a political discussion, but just that's what I was left with was all of this hunger for power to what end and why. And it seems the answer to you is he's a patriot. He thought he was being a patriot. And I just, it's just not it's not the vibe I got from what Adam made. You know, I, I, just, I got a very very mysterious portrait out of it that I just could not understand why the man wanted what he wanted and what he did. I do um, find, though, that this, to me, transcends Cheney, that it does become a character um, study, um, an incredibly humorous one, an absurdist one at moments, which is Adam's real talent of being able to take something which is very profound in moments and absolutely tragic and diabolical but also to be able to find the entertainment and the humor as well which always have to go hand in hand um but to me it transcended just cheney and was also a reflection about what it means to be a person to be a family to be a nation i found it moving beyond belief Mm. i was sort of almost embarrassed and surprised that I, i i was crying with laughter and i was crying uh from sadness uh, and and I, and I kind of see it also as a, as a love story to America. I think that it's 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 you know America's always been a country of great contradictions with these beautiful ideals and beautiful dreams that do make it exceptional, mm-hmm. and that the rest of the world look to and have been inspired by. You know, there are many other free countries now around the world, but many of which were inspired by America's mm-hmm. freedoms. Um, but then the dark underbelly that has always existed. You know, I mean see slavery and you know considering some people to be three-fifths of a person etc and all that and then continues to this day of people who believe that in order to have those freedoms you are allowed to act in a way that is mm. absolutely opposing to what we uh, judge you know yeah. uh, america's uh, standards to be um that's fascinating and uh, uh, and i think that's fascinating not only to americans but to, to the entire world because yeah. america has uh, enormous influence and not just politically but emotionally to everybody mm-hmm. because it is a very unique country. Yeah. Now, how about you, Sam? Similar question. I mean, yeah. uh, just <clears throat> divorcing any feelings you might have from playing the character. Yeah, I mean, uh, what, what Christian said about um, being juxtaposing Adam's job, I think, is really uh, important to kind of. It's our job to find the humanity in the character. That's our responsibility. And it's also, it's George W. through uh, Cheney's point of view, too. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that that's, that's, what's, that's what's sort of my job is to kind of just uh, make, make him as human as possible. Yeah. You know, in spite of the very famous way that he talked, you know. Which is a little daunting, but um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's just working uh, with when you, whenever you're you're working with somebody like like Christian or Francis McDormand or B. 
be it Gary Oldman or Joaquin Phoenix, where right now I'm working with Michelle Williams, you you go you go in loaded for bear. You go in knowing you're you're gonna fight Frazier or you're gonna you're going into like you're like you better be on your A game, you know, mm-hmm. because I know he's gonna be on his A game. So and that and then it's a very famous guy. So it's mm-hmm. a it's it's a you're 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 tingling with <laughs> yeah you know creativity because you're scared and you're like you want it to be you know really good yeah and and I think that's what was so fun about us on set working together all right now we have one of my favorite people in the business uh barry jenkins barry we had on the show two years ago talking about moonlight and we all know what happened there with the surprise uh best picture victory at the oscars this year is follow-up if beale street could talk is just uh exquisite and uh he's nominated for a slew of things at the oscars he's nominated for adapted screenplay at the spirits he's nominated for best feature and best director and uh, what I was really interested to talk to him about, this happened in New York. Uh, it was the night after the Apollo Theater premiere of the film uh, in conjunction with the New York Film Festival. Uh, I guess this would have been like the day after I talked to Spike now that I think about it. But uh, I wanted to talk to Barry about adapting James Baldwin because that is heady territory to be in. So here's what Barry had to say about that. Um, like I said, it's a companion piece to Moonlight. And at this time I was sort of kind of wrestling with with my family, with the way I grew up, and then meeting friends who grew up in other kinds of ways. And I felt like this book in particular, as far as Baldwin's uh, bibliography goes, it kind of pairs his more protest, protest novel, his protest, the essayistic quality in his work, with this very, very deep, lush sensuality um, and an affinity for romance. Mm -hmm. And the romance in this book, and I think in the film also, between Kiki and Stefan, is so pure... It's so, it has so much possibility. And then on the other hand, you know, when we get into these things, the issues the family is facing and the issues that Fani is facing in particular, you see that many things are impossible um, just because of the circumstance. And to have those things painted with the same brush, spoken in the same voice by Baldwin in this novel, I was just like, wow, I mean, it's going to be difficult, but, you know, I got to get that. Yeah. Uh, I've never read If Beale Street Could Talk, and I was going to, but she said, eh, it's, a, it's a faithful adaptation. So it is a faithful adaptation, you know, with the exception of the last five minutes, yeah. Tell, I was going to ask you, what, what did you change and, and why? Um, the book, I mean, one, a book has so much interior uh, dialogue. You really get inside the characters. And so in a film, it's a lot of what happens, you know, how it feels, but this happens and this happens and this happens. And I think the magic is in translating to the audience how a thing feels. Seeing the characters emote is what gives it the depth um, that you would normally get in a novel by reading the interior sort of like life of the character. I say all that to say the way the book closes, just in story beats, it's very, uh, very truncated. You know, it, it kind of leaves you almost like in the middle of an inhale, uh, so to speak. And I just felt like for an audience to go through the things they go through in this film, the highs and the lows, you meet these characters and the romance, their love for each other is so vibrant. The love for the family uh, for them is so vibrant that to not give an audience just some kind of definitive, conclusive uh, emotion, um, situation, uh, circumstance to close out the piece, it felt like it wasn't fair. Because in this medium, because we don't have, you know, 100 pages of interior voice, um, 
I felt like we needed to just give a little bit more. And so we extended the ending of the novel is what I'd say. Okay, if you ever get a chance to talk to Boots Riley in any setting, I highly recommend it. It is a trip in its own. Uh, Boots has uh, just fascinating perspective on uh, life, on art, on certainly politics. And his film this year, uh, Sorry to Bother You, (laughs) talk about a trip. Uh, If you haven't seen it, please seek it out. Uh, This year, Boots is nominated the Spirits for Best First Feature and Best Screenplay for the film. And, uh, you know, Boots is a a previously and still is a recording artist, uh, big Bay Area hip-hop group, The Coup, uh, which, you know, fantastic group. And I just was curious about that transition from being a recording artist to, you know, being a feature filmmaker, especially considering Boots went to film school at San Francisco State. And uh, his life just went in a different direction, but he eventually got back around to filmmaking. And uh, man, what a what an impact he's made with this first film. So here's Boots Riley talking about that. Yeah, I, w- I went to film school, and that was at San Francisco State. And at the time, there was a lot of focus on experimental film mm-hmm. and uh, documentary, um, both of which ones were, weren't things I was interested in. Um, and uh, going to school in San Francisco might have been different than going to film school in L.A. or New York, where I think, like, if you go to school in L.A. or New York, you know people who got out of school and made a film or even, you know, made a narrative film yeah. at the, you know, for their thesis, you know. I went to film school in North Carolina, so I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So it was, like, seemed still like a pipe dream, yeah. even though I was in film school and. So that's why I took the record deal, um, and on the and then to be honest, you know that was a long time ago. I don't remember any of that shit. Yeah, you know, right. like I'm sure I learned some of that stuff and put and brought it forward, but I can't parse out where I got this versus where I got that because mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I also was in, in. You know, we made a lot of videos of which I only co-directed one of them, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, I was a part of that whole process, and you know, I wasn't a stranger to a set. Um, but I, I think a lot of really more than way more than film school. What helped me out is producing music, which is a similar collaborative process where you've got people that are masters of their craft. And in the music sense, uh, if I'm the producer, they've each got more experience. Well, maybe not experience, but they've each got more uh, knowledge of music than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's my vision that I have that 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 we I, and I have to get them to buy into it. I have yeah. to get them to like it. I got, have to get them to, uh, and I have to know what I want out of each one of them that that they can bring. And then I have to know that you know the guitar player is going to want a guitar solo, and that might not help out. The final product, I have to know that the, when the bass player has a better bass line than I do. So all of those things and just working and getting projects done and having the experience of dealing with people fighting with each other. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have made this movie even with, you know, the same idea. If I had the same idea, I wouldn't have made this same movie coming straight out of film school because I might have been so worried about just being able to make a film. Mm-hmm that I would have been like, okay, 
we can take out all that stuff, and it's really just about Cassius and Detroit meeting each other at a telemarketing plate. You know what I'm saying? Like, right, right. Uh, I might have been more malleable, yeah. but since I had been doing art for a long time and had been doing art that was contentious even just not even for the politics, but for the, the style with which I did it, I was used to people being like, that's weird. Why are you doing that? Yeah. And having my own reasons and being okay with that. Being set in what you Yeah, your but but also yeah. let's you know, that's also part of the dialectical materialism idea is that, you know, taking critique in and mm-hmm. and being okay with it and, and you know, and, and listening to it and you know, you do go through a process of not listening to it and then after a while you hear it. Okay, back to back here we're gonna have Ethan Hawke and Paul Schrader the star and director, respectively, of First Reformed, which premiered at the Venice Film Festival in 2017. And we're talking about a year and a half ago. And the movie is uh, still in the thick of things. Uh, Ethan received more critics' awards for Best Actor than anyone else this year, although somehow he was left off of the uh, Oscars shortlist at the end of the day. But he was nominated for uh, Spirit for uh, Best Male Lead, Paul was nominated for uh, Best Director and Best Screenplay at the Spirits, and he got his first ever Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. This is the guy that wrote Taxi Driver, ladies and gentlemen, and he's uh, got stories to tell. So you're going to first hear from Ethan, and you're going to hear from Paul about this uh, wonderful movie, First Reformed. I spend my life waiting for moments like that to happen again. Like, you know, when I was a kid and I was on... Dead Poet Society, Peter Weir created a space for characters to work and breathe. And and that's why when I was talking about Great Expectations, I always kept waiting for Peter to come back in and create a space for me. Mm-hmm. And Paul Schrader is such a meticulous writer that the job of even doing really difficult things, real dark material, real heady material, material, a person, I mean, my character is having an full-blown, grown-up existential crisis. Mm -hmm. But it's written so beautifully that playing it wasn't work. It was fun. I mean, I I had a great... We were at the New York Film Critics Awards. It was the year Boyhood was winning prizes. And I was there presenting a prize to Linkletter. And Paul Schrader was there giving a prize to Pavel Pavelkowski, who had just done... uh, Ida, mm-hmm. right? And and Paul, that movie for some reason, its kind of spiritual quest of Ida and what it was asking of the audience really woke something up in Paul. And and this movie, I almost feel like he's been waiting 30 years to write this movie. It's mm-hmm. a, it's so clearly the same author as Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's the same voice. You feel it. Mm-hmm. You, you just... Totally. And it kind of reminded me a little... When I read the script, it reminded me of... A, I mean, Paul's always working, so it's different. But you remember when um, Terrence Malick hadn't made a movie in 20 years? Like, it had been, like, before Thin Red Line. Yeah. It had been so... And the second that movie starts, you're like, oh, that's Terrence Malick. It was, it was as if no time had gone by. Right. It was so clearly the same voice of the guy who made Badlands or Days of Heaven. And I felt that way reading this script. I was like, this is Paul Schrader at his finest. And it was easy to act in the movie mm-hmm. because the character was so well-drawn. And he was talking about things that I really care about, and I, I, I kind of I feel inside me too. Yeah, 
The whole movie is just asking questions in, in, yeah. in its way. You said you put a lot of yourself into it. What did that mean? How so? The biggest part of me that like unites the part of me that wants to direct things and wants to write things and wants to act in things is, for lack of a better word, um, whoever the essence of any of us is, is our like, our, whatever our spiritual identity is. And I, that word has a lot of, it just has a lot of new age mm-hmm. frou-frou attached to it. But we all have it. You know, we all, there is something, you hold a child in your arms and they're there. Mm-hmm. You know, they're present. They're not, they don't have a voice yet. They're not a Republican yet. They're not a Democrat yet. They're not gay. They're not straight. But the essence of who they are is present. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we all, we all have that is what I mean to say. A search for some kind of meaning uh, in this life of why we're born and what we're here to do, that charge is something that I just think about all the time. Mm-hmm. And I felt like Paul gave it voice. You feel a grown man kind of crying in anger in mm-hmm. First Reformed. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't offer any answers. It's just question, question, question. But I relate to those questions. And I feel that there's great value and intelligence in asking them. Mm-hmm. And so the questions that Toller is asking are, are things that I think about in my daily life all the time. And so that's like what I mean. Yeah. I, it felt good to play that part because it felt like I was vocalizing something that wasn't vocal. I mean, that's the job of movies, right? Is to make the unseen scene. Mm-hmm. And the job of a great performance or even a good one is to give voice to the voiceless. Well, um, I believe that uh, screenwriting is part of the oral tradition, not the literary one. So I just keep telling the story over and over again and outlining it over and over again until it achieves a certain critical mass. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can tell a story for 45 minutes and keep someone interested, you have a movie. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that's a good thing. You know, it's either going to live or die after something a good deal of repetition. Mm-hmm. If it dies, that's good too because you're saved the work of writing a script that no one would really be interested in. Mm-hmm. And if it lives, and you have an enormous amount of propulsion because you know it all. It's all in your head. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, that's uh, the way I began with the taxi driver. That's the way I'm still writing. Well, let's, let's go to uh, First Reform. What was the genesis there? What, what, were, you, what were you thinking about it seems rather clear when you see the movie, but I just want to hear it from you. What was on your mind that you wanted to kind of get out onto the page here? Well, there was first an intellectual decision to make a film about the spiritual life. I had refused to do this forever. I had written a book of theological aesthetics, but when people said, tried to compare my films to my, that book, I said, no, I'm not that guy. I'm not going to make that film. I'm not going to get out on that Braysonian ice. And um, and I just refused to. And then after that meeting with Pavel, I said, well, maybe it's time now to write that script. Mm-hmm. You swore you wouldn't write. And, um, and of course, um, the, um, the, whole, the, the heaviness that was weighing down on us now in that what had been a past, a theoretical conversation that was held generation after generation, what is man's purpose is becoming less and less theoretical. I mean, uh, like 
my grandchildren might not even have that conversation. And more likely than not, their, their grandchildren will not have that conversation because the species will not be having that conversation anymore because it will be a different species. Mm-hmm. So that is a, you know, an ecological lodestone. Yeah. And so the, the first thing I did, I said, well, I, I've got to um, revisit all, all the films of this nature that I've liked and see all the new ones that have been made in the last 40 years. So you just start watching. And then you, you start cherry picking. You get a little bit here, a little bit there. And it starts to come together. So, you know, the metaphor then, of course, is the priest. And, and not the priest, the reverend, in this tourist church. You know, nobody attends. Um, and then you start taking it from there and you take... That, that the reverend came from Bresson, and the, the little church came from Bergman, and uh, the ending came from Dreyer, and the levitation came from Tarkovsky, and, and they get wound up together. And what surprised me most was that what was tying all these things together was the barbed wire of taxi driver, that propul- propulsive, monocular obsession. Um, of that film and I didn't really sense that the poltergeist of Travis Bickle had come in the room and, uh, but he had and he was sitting across the desk from me <laughs> and, I, and uh, I sensed his presence Next up we've got another Vice contestant ladies and gentlemen I've, I found it uh, striking when I realized this that I had spoken to so many people about this movie this year but it, it was one of my favorite movies uh, I, I think it's fascinating that it's such a love it or hate it film as well but this is director adam mckay who was nominated for uh best director and best original screenplay for the film previously he won the oscar for the big short for uh, best adapted screenplay and i kind of had the same thing on my mind with him that i had with amy and sam and, and christian which is just uh the drive of a man like dick cheney the why of it all and we ended up in an interesting conversation about, uh, you know, just Adam's sort of perspective on what power does to a person. And, uh, you know, I thought that went to some interesting places. So this is Adam talking about that. I think, you know, there used to be, I, I feel like when I was a kid in the 70s and the early 80s, we used to talk about the toll that power would take on people. I feel like we don't talk about it that much anymore. And like power screws you up. Like it's the, it's the the biggest drug there is. I mean, there's nothing better than power, not even money, sex, anything else you can think of. Power is the one. I I originally, in the very first draft of the script, I had some voiceover talking about how power is the thing that comes closest to disguising itself as love uh, because you're needed. People look at you with a, a want in their eyes and it really feels close to love. And I think what you saw was out of the 60s and 70s, not just with the Cheneys, but I think a lot of people in America like this idea of career and ambition and and this idea of climbing ladders came about. And and to some degree, that's fine. But I think with the Cheneys, it just it, it took an extra step. It became about this kind of the fatherhood, the fatherly nature of the presidency mixed with this desire for his wife to love him, for his family to be proud of him. And these are all kind of like decent things to want. And then when you threw 9-11 in there 
and the paranoia and fear of that, I, I just feel like it, it detonated. I feel like he became a very scary individual in a lot of ways yeah. uh, from that point on. You know, one of my favorite movies of the year uh, just somehow was not recognized. It barely got recognized at the Spirit Awards with a lead actor nomination for one of the individuals in this clip. The film is called Blind Spotting. Uh, this is a clip with David Diggs and Rafael Casal. David was nominated for male lead at the Spirits. I think Rafael could have done with a supporting nomination, frankly, and they certainly deserved love for the screenplay, which is what we kind of spent the bulk of the conversation talking about. So this is David with Rafael talking about uh, Oakland and gentrification and all of these ideas that kind of went into their, into their script. And uh, again, blind spotting. If you haven't seen that movie, go seek it out. It didn't get enough love this year. The real thesis was created by our producer, Jess Calder, who found Raphael via a YouTube wormhole looking at his poetry stuffing and approached him and said, do you, do you think some of the way that you write verse would translate into a film? Mm -hmm. um, and later when I was sort of brought into the fold, um, we, you know, that was really the linchpin was about verse about how do we use verse and then about us wanting to tell a bay area story we knew that that was the case very shortly or around that same time i don't remember it was before or after but oscar grant was was killed at fruitvale bar station so all of a sudden in order to tell an, a bay area story that's the story we're talking about you know we have to that that was just in the air and it was a you know oscar's face was everywhere there were protests and riots and all these things like we had to so that sort of became we knew that was going to be an instigating incident in the film um, we knew it would star us we knew it would be in verse and we knew it would be about Oakland and that was it that was the yeah I don't even know that gentrification was like a word we were throwing around as, as a major theme it was just it, it was a convention that we could use to originally the idea of them as movers was the, the way to get around to all these different points of view in the city mm -hmm. Um, what happened is over 10 years, it went from like, there's some influx of people to there's a massive takeover of people not from the Bay Area. And so the urgency raised for us about this time capsule, this moment. But I don't know that in the beginning, we were like, we want to talk about gentrification. Sure. We wanted to talk about... We wanted to show a bunch of different neighborhoods. So that was why we made yeah. the movers, was so that they could go from place yeah, to yeah, place yeah. and we could show as much of, we could show off as much of Oakland as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, themes that developed as you started writing. I mean, to me, a theme that kind of pops out is, is just about identity and who you are. And I think about the scene with you at the party and that you don't have to act ghetto to hang out here. And that, yeah, that's, that, a, that's a layered moment. <laughs> to say the least. I mean, it's a challenge to who, who he feels like he is. And uh, your reaction is so potent in that moment. And I just, you know, how did these themes start to develop, I guess, on the page? I mean, I think we were just trying to tell these stories, honestly. So we never really thought of it in terms of, like, an issue we, not, we needed to... There was never a moment where we were like, mm -hmm. you got to really dial in on identity here. You know, <laughs> sure. um, it was just about... Who is Miles at this yeah. point? It was about putting Colin and Miles in this in this particular situation, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, the, the countdown, the, the probation countdown was an interesting point, right, when we sort of settled on that as a, as a clock by which we'd be able to follow the film. Mm -hmm. That ramps things in an interesting way. So it was yeah. always about making choices for these characters that end up 
forcing their hands or forcing their, you, you know, it, it ramps up situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... Yeah, that provides a layer of tension to everything he does. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, and I think Miles, in response, has to, you know, their lives are... are Inseparable, so they can't, you know. So Miles has to respond to the same clock, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the that's one of the big problems. But that's what's sort of coming to a head in that scene, right? It's like Miles hasn't yet understood that his that Colin's life is so <clears throat> drastically different now than the you know. And, and and Miles isn't worried about it in that scene, right? You know, he's he's upset about his own how displaced he feels, even in this party, mm-hmm. you know. Surprise nomination this year, Marina de Tavira, supporting actress for Roma. We just spoke to Marina a couple of weeks ago here, and gosh, she was delighted, as you can imagine. Uh, no one really expected this. Uh, early on in the season, it seemed like she might be somebody who would, you know, you might want to look at for awards consideration, but she just didn't seem to be catching any traction, no critics awards or anything like that. But lo and behold, there she was in the nominees when they were announced last month, and uh, she's a total delight. She's really cool, and uh, here we are talking about Alfonso Cuaron's unique approach here by not giving the actors or anyone the screenplay and just kind of discovering circumstances on a day-by-day basis and what that does to somebody like Marina, who's a professional actress, surrounded by a lot of first-time actors, non-actors, and the like. So here's Marina de Tavira talking about that. Well, not having the script didn't really affect me. You know, in acting school, you're used to play with whatever they tell you to do. Sometimes they just give you directions, like, and you go ahead and play it and improvise Mm -hmm. a scene. So that wasn't really a problem. I think it was understanding what what Alfonso wanted, which it was, like, difficult for me to understand at the beginning because he would give us the, the lines, but then he would say, but you don't have to really say exactly the same words. And there's a, 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 some small room for improvising, but that's, that means with dealing with what you don't expect. And, and what, once it happens, you have to, there you have room to do whatever it comes, but not that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't just play another scene. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, invent something, something weird. So getting adjusting to that, that was difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. That was what we did the first week. It was like trying to really understand what he meant, like because it's not improvising, but it's not all it, but all it also isn't like the way we we usually do that. We we stick to the words that we have and we rehearse. Mm-hmm. There were no rehearsals at all. And there was no previous work. We we shot this in chronological order and the only previous work I did with Alfonso was a very long talk about what he remembered about his mother mm-hmm. and and he didn't say anything about what was going to happen to her in the during the film he just stopped at the very moment where we would do the first scene he said everything that she had lived just before and then we started with no rehearsals with no like getting to know the other actors because he truly believed and i think he was right that that would actually emerge by the way we were working mm-hmm. and because he think I think he thought that he had like really really concentrated in choosing the right person for each character and yeah. that they could really avoid it and they that they had it within them we yeah. had it yeah. yeah well um was it were you nervous knowing that you were 
playing his mother, isn't you know, in, in this movie essentially, and that uh, that kind of gives you this sense that there's an even more watchful eye on you than just a director. I mean, you're playing a man's mother, so. Well, you, you know, it wasn't. I was really nervous, really, really nervous. I remember the first day I, I walked in, and the first day I worked there, uh, my heart was beating so so fast that the the, the people in sound were really worried because they couldn't hear my words. They were only mm. he- listening to my heart. <laughs> so, uh, but that, it wasn't because of I w- because I was playing his mother. It was because I was working with him, mm. and I really he. I mean, I sometimes you when you admire someone so much, you feel like really. Uh, I want to be up to the standards. I really don't want to fail here, you know, yeah. fail him because he trusted me. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it was his mother, that really didn't, because I felt I could really relate to it. And mm-hmm. I trusted that he knew why he chose me and I knew why he chose me because Sophia has a lot to do with my own mother and has a lot to do with my life. So it was it was about him and about really trying to understand what he wanted because I I understood it wasn't something like common yeah. like just common acting it was something else all right we're in the home stretch here uh didn't really talk to too many of the animated directors this year animated film directors I should say many directors are animated in their own right but uh Brad Bird received the Oscar 15 years ago for The Incredibles animated feature film and uh, he's back this year with Incredibles 2, the, the sequel. And I loved this movie, actually. I, I kind of liked it better than the first one. Um, but what I was curious about is 15 years is like an eternity in the world of animated tech, right? And so, like, what was he able to do on this movie that he wasn't able to do on the last movie? And how did all that kind of, like, invigorate his spirit as he was making Incredibles 2? So here's Brad Bird talking about the advances in technology and making the sequel to a, a Pixar hit. And by the way, this movie made like $1.2 billion, $600 million over here in the States alone. I mean, it was a big hit. So here is Brad Bird talking about Incredibles 2. Uh, the best way to put it, I think, I mean more accurately, I think it's that we barely were able to do it on the first film. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that computer animation was bad at you know, humans, hair, uh, fabric, water, fire. That's all we had in The Incredibles. And um, so when we first showed our story reels to the company, um, people were on one level very excited by it. But on another level, everyone came out of the screening white because uh, they were just feeling like, oh, holy crap, how are we going to be able to do this? It's everything that we are not too hot at. And that's all it is. There is nothing else. There's no furry animals and there's no, um, you know, uh, uh, hard uh, surfaced characters. Mm -hmm. It's all squishy humans, which we're not very good at, and uh, fabric and hair and fire and all that. So um, uh, they felt like, we'll figure it out. And they did. But we were on the edge of failure the entire time we were making the first movie. We barely got the hair in time for Violet. And, and you know, we had some very promising tests early on. Um, but they were kind of like strips of rubber. And they kind of generally moved like hair should move. And they said, we were very encouraged by this. And I was encouraged by it, too. And uh, yet, uh, it didn't improve. And finally, they came to me and they said, 
it's not getting better. We don't know how to do it. And nobody else knows how to do it either. All the other CG films had hair helmets, you know. Right. And, and uh, uh, they said, um, does Violet have to have long hair and I said yes it's part of her character she hides behind it you know when things get intense and she has to step up she kind of starts pulling her hair back it is her character yes <laughs> that's the only kind of hair she can have and they're like well it's not working and then some uh, uh, genius decision was uh I mean, some genius insight was had over a weekend. And somebody like, if I put a decimal point here, look what happens. <laughs> and we had hair, but we had it at the last possible second that we could have it. And um, so that's kind of like what the making the first movie was like. And now um, uh, all the rigs are, are much better. Um, they're more responsive to what you wanted to do. The lighting tools are better. The fabric is we can do well. And uh, it's more like, do you know what you want? Mm. And if you know what you want, we can do it. Um, uh, and that was a much nicer place to be. But mm. there, this, the hardest part is always the story, and, and there's nothing that makes that easier. And talk about hits. We're going to wrap it up here with Black Panther, uh, one of the biggest hits of the year, $600 million here in the States, much like The Incredibles. Uh and, and I spoke to the film's producer, Kevin Feige, who was, to me, one of the most crucial figures in contemporary cinema, just given his place as the sort of shepherd of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This was our 100th episode as well, so it was kind of a big moment at the end of the year. was really desperate to talk to Kevin about just where we are in terms of contemporary cinema and where superhero films fit into that, and certainly... The frankly unexpected success level of Black Panther, which is a Best Picture nominee, and, and Kevin is up as producer of the film for that award. So, wrapping things up, here's Kevin Feige talking about Black Panther. Uh, it also, you know, I guess it's a dose of prestige as well for a genre that, let's face it, some people have biases against uh, for whatever reasons. Um, why do you think it is that, uh, you know, movies like comic book movies or sci-fi or what have you, are they're not really taken seriously in their time a lot of the times? I think they are taken seriously by a lot of people. I think you're asking about people that uh, vote on awards and, th and things like that. I think they're taken seriously by a lot of people, which is thankfully why they succeed and why people anticipate the, the next ones. Right. Um, as, I, as I did uh, when I was a kid uh, growing up waiting for these next movies. Uh, having my mom drive me to the movie theater to see the teaser poster of my new favorite movie coming out because you couldn't see them mm -hmm. online like you can now. Um, I don't know is the question. I, I you know I remember Star Wars was nominated for Best Picture and right. I think Close Encounters yeah. was and I and and, uh, and I think he, was E.T. nominated. Yeah, yeah. It just I sort mean, of I guess it just sort of reminds me of like certain serialized filmmaking that like you know i think of like the westerns of of, of its heyday uh -huh. for instance uh that just it takes some time for certain minds to look back at it and say that was an important pop cultural thing you know what i mean yeah yeah i mean it, it is uh when we're not you know we have an opportunity to 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 make films the way we want to make them with people that we want to make them with it's so um it's so uh, satisfying and it's it takes it requires so much effort but it's so satisfying and then when the audience responds to it then 
that's all that. I mean, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that's all. That's what's pretty. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty. That's it, pretty amazing. And 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 certainly, what's happening now with Panther uh, is very very special and means so much to us um, because Ryan Coogler, who I know you've spoken to, um, and everybody associated with that movie poured their heart and soul in it, as everybody does who works on any movie of ours. But that in particular, with what Ryan was doing, what Ryan had to say, and Ryan vouching for. Uh, crew members that we had not worked with before but that he believed in and who came in and blew us away with initial sort of presentations to get the job. It's the ultimate example of all of that, I feel I, like. I mean, across I mean, the board. Yeah. And to and not only f- for them to have stepped up uh, to play, to bat, I'm not good at sports metaphors, <laughs> and then knock it out of the park the way they did is, is, is incredible in the fact that the world responded to it the way they did. And that's going to do it uh, for our final show before the 91st Oscars and before the Independent Spirit Awards this weekend. Tune in. Uh, I hope your favorites win. Uh, I hope my favorites win, but that rarely happens. Uh, enjoy the show. If you've been following just kind of the, the the news of the last week or so leading up to this event, uh, man, it's been uh, it's been exciting, let's say as they try to figure out how to uh, make an Oscars telecast that will, I don't know, somehow appeal to the audience that they're desperate to uh, get a piece of. It seems to me the Academy has a lot of uh, soul-searching to do if they're going to put together a show that is both reflective of who they are and uh, respectfully progressive in its... Uh, mission to appeal as a television show. Look, I'm glad it's not my job. I wish them well. But uh, regardless, the 91st Oscars will be this Sunday night on ABC. Check it out. And I hope you enjoyed all these chats with all of these nominees. I certainly did. Once again, you've been listening to Playback, a variety iHeart radio podcast. (laughs) 